Hi, and welcome to episode 65 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives in art. I'm Maria Stolger, and my guest today is Nicholas Harding, one of Australia's most celebrated artists. He's won the Archibald Prize, the Archibald People's Choice Award, the Kilgour Prize, the Dobell Drawing Prize, and many others. His work crosses portraiture to landscape and still life. His oil paintings are created with a glorious impasto technique. He uses gouache to capture the life-size portraits of many a famous sitter, and he's renowned for his magnificent ink drawings. He's had over 30 often sell-out solo shows. Major survey shows of his work have been held at the S.H. Irvin Gallery and the National Portrait Gallery, and his work is in the collections of many public institutions, including the National Gallery of Australia, the Art Gallery of New South Wales, the National Portrait Gallery, and in private and corporate collections around the world. We had a great conversation in his studio in Sydney where an impressive landscape was taking shape. And one of the huge impacts in his work, which we only talked about after I turned off the recorder, was the impact of coming to Australia after spending the first eight years of his life in England, and in particular, the different light here, and how its glare created contrasts which were so different to the muted tones of England. And it was his time in the bush and the beaches as a child which caused him later to move further from the English influence to make Australia the subject of his work. All the works we talk about are on the website talkingwithpainters.com. I started by asking Nicholas what memories he had of art as a child. Most of us remember it from about the age of four very clearly. Um, And I I certainly have very, very visual memories of, and they're not based on photos, they're they're actual memories because some of the things aren't word photographs. I mean, there are a lot of things that obviously we remember because we saw a photograph of it. But um, there are lots of things that uh, uh, have stayed with me. Yeah. Oh, yeah, like what? Not so much of pictures that happened later when we got to Australia, but in terms of why I paint, some of the things I paint now come from those, those times. There's a great, there's a great quote by um, Simone de Beauvoir that I, I, I adore, which is, just trying to recall it, it's, um, we can't arbitrarily invent projects for ourselves. They have to be written in our pasts as requirements. And so if you think of, we read the biographies of a lot of creative people, there's, there's usually, it has a lot to do with where they come from and who, who their parents were or, or, or where they lived. Yeah. There's all, there are always seminal influences that have been imperative to what they have, have ended up doing. And have your parents been had, had a huge influence on you? They did. They weren't, they weren't necessarily creative in an artistic way. Dad did draw a little bit. Uh, Mum eventually did quite a lot of drawing and painting. Uh, oh, but, but, but later, uh, after we'd left home, I've ah. got two brothers and a sister. So she was very busy um, being a mum, and she was a working mum as well. Uh, But the thing I was referring to earlier in terms of a boy in England, um, we used to visit my paternal grandparents a lot in south-east London in Welling, and they had a great garden. They were really, really avid gardeners. They lived through the Blitz, and um, their house had been bombed twice because they lived next to a railway line, Mm. and the Germans often miss... um, Mum and Dad are 
both born in 1930, so they were nine-year-olds when the war started, mm-hmm. and they'd been evacuated from London during the Phony War, and then come back to London, um, and then the Blitz happened. Right. So my grandparents in particular, um, you know, the, the way they, they saw life, I imagine, after the war, is everything was a, was a celebration of, of continuing life. And part of this celebration was in the garden they grew. So they had a pond. It wasn't a big garden. It was, you know, mm. it was a suburban backyard in, in, in um, very close to central London. But they had great roses and they had wonderful irises. They had, the roses weren't just in beds, but they were climbers as well. They, oh. had, a, they had a pond with, with some fish in it, which we used to feed. But the thing is about memory and, you know, when you, when, you, when you return to something that you remember as a child and everything shrunk. Yeah. You know. So I haven't returned to these places because <laughs> my, my grandparents are long dead. But, um, you know, I was only with these memories of from like when I was five or six. So everything seems a bit larger than life. Yeah. So a rose bush in my mind is, is a tall thing. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's bigger than it would appear to me now as an adult. So that kind of feeds my attraction to, to painting flowers and things of that nature. Because mm. it's not, and it's not just about a memory thing. It also ties in with the whole tradition of still life and uh, memento mori uh, mm. that comes from the, the um, medieval times. And then, oh, so is that something, that, that's something you're um, conscious of when you do a still life? Memento Mori? Oh, very much, because when you do a still life, it, it dies in front of you. You know, you come in the day, uh, particularly here, if it's been locked up at night and it's been a stuffy hot night, you know, there's a lot of um, detritus that's fallen off and often they wil- everything's wilted. Yeah. So right. you're very conscious of, and even when I'm on plein air in a garden painting, I remember painting um, down at Cancoban and it was a particularly hot uh, November and I was trying to paint the peonies, which are a very, very delicate flower. Mm. And in the, in, the, in the six hours it took me to paint the small peony, every time I looked back up from the canvas, uh, you know, another petal had dropped or, or oh, something really? had wilted a bit or, uh, yeah. you know, it was just dying in the Did that end up heat. in the painting? Like, uh, did, well, did it has s- to, well, not, not literally, but it has to get in there. Yeah. And obviously uh, as weather affects an on-plein-air painting and says it's the sh- you're literally chasing shadows mm. um, you know the flower evolves in your painting different the flower you end up with is different to the both the flower that you started with in the morning and the flower you end up with in the afternoon yeah but it's that flower yeah exactly so it's it's very much a case of, of, of uh, chasing shadows and light and, mm. and the form in that sense yeah. but all those things from from childhood feed into the moments now. So there's also associations of familial love and care because mm. uh, I was very close to, to my grandparents. Yeah, uh, that must have something to do with it because, I mean, you wouldn't experience that garden if in that way if you didn't have that loving relationship. No, exactly right. That was whatever, whatever your human uh, interaction is, it, the relationships feeds into how you read and, and emote from something. Exactly. Um, so it's a, it's, a very, um, it's a very powerful and wonderful thing because for me it's a continuing dialogue with people 
who I loved and who loved me. So it's a very powerful thing, even now, you know, being a 62-year-old um, adult, those things return. Um, you know, it, it often happens when I'm painting a flower that, that, that they come to mind. And, mm. it's a, and it's a wonderful thing. So that's a, the complexity of memory and present, um, you know, the now thing and then the things that have been mm. are all tied up together. Mm. And um, when you came to Australia, uh, what was that like? I mean, you were only eight. Oh, it was brilliant. It was, uh, I mean, as kids, you, you just, you know, your parents are going off on this adventure and so, yeah, oh, it's great. That's what people do. And then when we got here, um, it was just so different um, in terms of, we'd often gone to the beach in in, in um, Britain. We'd gone down, driven down from Sevenoaks where we lived to the south coast down to uh, Frinton and Eastbourne, and which were sand beaches. But mm. um, when the tide went out, um, it felt like you'd almost walk to France because it was so shallow and so benign. The water was so far out you couldn't see it, so you had to wait for high tide to come in to oh, get water. Right. Yeah. And there was lots of breakwaters, so the expansive beach was broken up by um, old kind of um, rotting timber breakwaters. So then we came to Australia and there was surf and there were rips and then the sand was too hot to walk on. You got back in the car and if you didn't have your towel in the right place, the vinyl seats would burn your, scald your you know, yeah. legs, your, yeah. your thighs. Um, there were yeah. bindies, so the grass, was, <laughs> the grass was violent. That was one of my first memories. We went to visit a friend in Bondi and it was an overcast day. It wasn't a very nice day. And it was, we'd only been, we hadn't been in Sydney a week. And we went up to where, must be North Bondi, where the expanse of grass field is oh yeah and I saw it and I went oh awesome so I took off my shoes and went for a run and within <laughs> within seconds my feet were on fire and I couldn't work it out and it was full of bindies it was just excruciating and it yeah. was so all these things yeah that, the Australian experience and then we'd be warned before we left because we used to go walking in Knoll Park near home and poke things with sticks and and whatnot and they said oh you can't do it in Australia the spiders will kill you and the snakes will kill you and <laughs> So it was. Well, um, you live when you you moved to a place in Sydney that was pretty much in bushland. It was in the bush, yeah. yeah. It was sort of the beginning of when that northwestern part of Sydney was starting to be suburbanised, and so we lived on the edge, and so our playground was the bush, and um, pretty free sort of just childhood. Just free, yeah. yeah. You know, had to be home by dark, kind of thing. Yeah. And did you um, did you do art at school? Like, yeah, actually, yeah, I excelled at art at school. It was one of my favourite subjects. And was it in high school? I was always in the art room. I was always the one of the um, the few. It was a it was a cricket rugby league school, and I didn't play either, and wasn't interested in either. So I was I was labelled the um, the the arty drug taking poofter. <laughs> They were right on one count. I wasn't a poofter and I was, didn't take any drugs. So um, that, was, that, was, that was the nature of life back then. So one of the things, um, you've got your friends, but then you want to fit in a little bit more. Yeah. And, and I, because I could draw, so I started drawing caricatures of my classmates in about third, third form, which is what, year nine, I think. Oh, yes, yeah. And, and then I made this little book of all my classmates just drew them in biro and that was a big hit and then so I did a whole book in in biro and coloured pencil of all the teachers 
which is which was another it disappeared and on the, on tour in the, of the staff rooms for about two months. So after you finished school, was it clear to you that you wanted to pursue something in art? Um, not immediately. Um, I I qualified for university, and I was the other things I was particularly good at at school was history and um, English, and philosophy. I was interested in philosophy, and so I signed up for arts. Okay. And became very quickly bored. Did the half yearlies, and then didn't really turn up for anything in the second six months. Did the exams, failed, and dropped out. And and I was going through some depressive issues. I wasn't very happy. And um, I thought I've got to get out of this. I've got to, sh- got to shake myself up a bit. Mm. So I thought I'll go overseas. So I worked as a um, worked at a petrol station for for eighteen months and saved some money up and got on another boat and went overseas. I was in Europe for about six months and um, came back because I'd fallen in love with my girlfriend who was from Australia. We met up overseas mm. and um, we're still together. And, um, oh, your wife? Yeah, my wife. Yeah. Oh, your wife, Lynn. Lynn. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. yes. And um, so that all worked out marvellously. <laughs> and uh, I came back and I wanted to get into animation because that was my one of my other seminal experiences. So when we just got to Australia, just moved to Normanhurst, um, we went shopping with mum one day and then she said, oh, I've got a surprise for you all. And um, did a bit of shopping and then she took us to see Snow White and the Seven Dwarves at Hornsby oh, Cinema. Yeah. And um, Walt Disney. Walt Disney. And then, of course, during my teens, um, I just fell in love with Warner Brothers cartoons, you know, Daffy Duck, and mm. I still love them. Mm. And uh, the mystery of that and, and timing and, and, and performance with the drawing was just, wow, how does that happen? Yeah. So anyway, so, yeah. so I got involved in that when I got back. Right. Eventually, it took, a, took, a, took about a year to finally um, yes. get, get employment. So that was with Hanna Barbera. Yeah, in, in, here it, in with Sydney. So you start off as a as an assistant animator, and and because I was draw, I could draw, and I was very good assistant animator. They made me an animator within about six months. When I was working there, I became freelance after a few years. But um, when I was working there, you just went in and drew cartoons, which was a very disciplined thing in the sense that there were deadlines. Um, you had to do a certain amount of footage a week, uh, which is how they measured footage of film. Mm-hmm. So that's how they worked it out to um, get the, the things made. So you get a storyboard and you have to translate a single panel on a, a storyboard, which has become a layout. So the layout artist has shown you what the scenery looks like and how big the characters are mm-hmm. and what their arc of action is. But then you have to turn that 2D, it was on paper with a pencil, back then, it's a long time before computers arrived. Mm. And so you had to turn that 2D space into a 3D one. Mm. So you had to to turn the character around 360, possibly, move them, so if you think of an X, Y axis being up and down, you've got to move through the Z one, the Z one that moves backwards and forwards away from the viewer and towards the viewer. Mm. So there's there's this, perspectival um, form at work mm. with movement and the speed of the movement, how fast is it going, how slow is it going. Yeah. And so you have to conceptualise that and then draw it. 
Yeah. And so how do you think that helped you with your own sort of uh, work? Well, I've come to realise that um, in terms of conceptualising space, it's, um, it's just given me a, a, an ability without thinking about it, so I guess that's intuitive ability, to represent a 3D space on a 2D platform. Mm. Um, understanding how when you're looking at a head to do a portrait, uh, how understanding how the planes travel back through space, if you know what I mean. Mm. Um, and then obviously you can't see it when you're painting the front of a head, but you understand it travels back behind the head and comes back around. So it's understanding the form as a 3D object. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, I've always loved those books, you know, those drawing books where they show the 3D. And oh, the animation. Show, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you, you had those on hand as a, some kind of manual when you're first learning. Well, it's so helpful. So helpful. To learn how to draw. Yeah. And I think, I read somewhere you went to life drawing. Well, life drawing period. is very important in that regard too, in the sense that you, because you draw a lot of, a lot of drawings in a life session very quickly from a lot of different angles. Mm. So you come to comprehend a particular form from many angles and you have that understanding when you look at it, looking at it at a particular angle so um, all these things inform how your hand moves how your your, your 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 brain drives your hand when you're drawing well, all that information's in your in your mind and yeah. somehow it's informing how how your um, dexterity works mm. and how did the painting start well, when you do things like illustrations and, and um, animation, whether it's for t animation for TV or for commercials or whatever, you're always a hired hand. You know, you're, there's, there's no element of um, personal investment in the sense of how you feel about things or, or how you really look at things. So life, life drawing actually for, for a number of years was what I call lancing the boil. So having, having been a a commercial artist for quite a, a number of years, I'd learned some very sort of bad habits and didn't really know who I was. Mm. And so the life drawing... What do you um, mean bad habits? Well, in the sense of I wasn't looking at something and drawing it. I was making stuff up and it wasn't necessarily of any worth because it came from a place of ego or um, my imagination. Mm. Um, I've always been a fairly, uh, well, very empirical in my in my um, approach to the world. You know, I'm an evidence-based kind of guy, and um, you know, I'm a devout atheist. You know, that whole belief nature of a belief system just doesn't work for me. Mm. Um, and so, the observed world it was always the, the painters who engaged me. You know, I like there's a lot of abstract work I, I do admire a great deal. And, and, and love, but even probably my f favourite, which is de Kooning, is a very figurative painter. Mm. He, 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 I mean, a lot of his paintings are of a figure, um, but even when they're not, they allude to landscape, and mm. they're not. They never strike me as purely abstract. Say someone like Rothko, or uh, even someone like Howard Hodgkins, a great British um, abstractionist. He, his his work is based on memory, and so there's something else empirical going on there yeah so what were you uh what what sort of subject matter were you looking at when you first started painting well if you go back to why i became a painter um 
the drawing thing was always there. And then the thing, going back to my parents and their love of art. Um, so when we were living at Normanhurst, there were lots of art books. And Mum and Dad were immediately engaged with trying to find out what was going in here in Australia. Mm. So they were buying art books on Australian artists. And, um, but there was a strong bent leaning towards British artists. So there were huge Turner fans um, oh. and Henry Moore fans. And uh, they'd buy reproduction posters of works and get them framed. Oh, right. Yeah. And so they'd hang around the house like paintings. Yeah. So they were... There were Turners, there were late Turners, there were, there were um, sort of Snowstorm at Sea, Peace, Burial at Sea, um, Burning of the Houses of Parliament. Mm. Very, very um, fabulous works, very painterly. Mm. And, mm. and then the other two really seminal works which sat above, well, there were three, um, two were French and, or French, French and French Dutch, and then one was Australian, and these would live um, above the dining room table for months at a time, then they'd sort of get rotated. And uh, So yeah. one was houses, houses at, actually there were four, there were two Van Goghs, one was Houses at Auber by Van Gogh, yeah. and Church of Arles by Van Gogh, and then there was Les Ambassadeurs, which was the poster of Martin Bruant by um, Toulouse Trek. Oh, yeah. And then there was Cephala by Russell Drysdale. And so I'd, I'd eat meals, do my homework, and these things just sat there. And I'd, I'd often just get lost in them. Yeah. And I particularly remember the Van Gogh houses, houses at Auvergne, because um, it's one of, more, one, of his, one of his more abstracted works. Very mm-hmm. much what it is, but the way the marks describe it and the rhythms and the, the planes of colour, um, I just get lost in those for... Yeah, um, well, and also you could probably, ages. with with Van Gogh, you can see the brush strokes. Well, so that's clearly. the thing. You've got a sense of the, the impasto and, and the making right. of the thing. When I was in my teens, I, I loved Brett Whiteley, um, Lloyd Reese, and um, and then John Olsons, and, and Arthur Boyd's, and Sid Nolan's, and these were all the ones here. Mm. Um, and then when I was 18, mum and dad took us all on a final holiday before I went off to uni. Um, and my one other brother was about to go to Germany to do an apprenticeship. And so one last family holiday went to Britain. And one of the things we went to was at the Royal Academy in London on Piccadilly was this massive Turner retrospective. I remember coming out completely drained and exhausted because <laughs> that man just put out so much extraordinarily good work. Yeah, Particularly yeah. in his late years. There were, just, there were just so many fantastic watercolours and drawings yeah. and paintings. So that was, that was that was a very that sort of always stayed with me. And then I was Brett Whiteley had led me to getting really enamoured of Francis Bacon's work, mm. and I'd already been introduced to, to his work by my dad when I was about twelve or thirteen, and they were very very sen- always very sensitive to to my love of drawing and painting and, and um, art, and because uh, I was always puddling around doing something. And so he saw somewhere up there in northwestern cultural wasteland of Sydney suburbs. I mean, there was nothing culturally to do up there, nothing at all. Yeah. Uh, and somewhere in the local paper, he saw this little ad for some little dinky 16 mil film that was going to be shown in a community hall in Pennant Hills one night 
on Francis Bacon. And so this is before Francis Bacon was globally known. He was getting a hell of a reputation, particularly in Europe. But um, he wasn't globally known. And uh, so we went along. There were about three of us there. (laughs) And it 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 was a very stormy night. And it was very humid, so the windows were open, and it was a timber, single-story, sort of large shed, I guess you'd call it. Yeah. So the storm arrived and was blowing everything sort of all over the place, and wind was lashing, lightning was flashing. Mm. But on this pull-down screen, you know those old pull-down screens that used to stand on a metal upright stand? Stand, yeah. Which was sort of fluctuating in in the breeze. (laughs) <laughs> and then there was a, the 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 tack 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 of the projector of the sixty mil film, yeah. and on all these sort of uh, crash zooms on Pope's faces and and um, <laughs> distorted, horribly disfigured figures, and yeah. uh, but brilliant colours and and exciting drawing and. Um, it must and, have been. And then there's amazing it. sort of like, like a soundtrack, like some Italian horror movie. <laughs> And, and so the whole thing was this, just this remarkable moment of, my God, this is so exciting. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's and so that just stayed with me. And these things just stayed. And I didn't do anything about it. Of course, just, wow, that's, that's, that's something out of the box, isn't it? <laughs> well, Francis Bacon, I remember first seeing Francis Bacon. He must have a huge impact on most people who've seen because you yeah. just think, what the yeah. hell's going on? And then, of course, on? I, got, then I got, got hold of his book of inter- the interview with David Sylvester, which is just a, a textbook piece of reading for any any painter on many levels and so that stayed with me so all these things sort of going back to that that quote I of Simone de Beauvoir's in the beginning these are all these sort of things that were planted in my um in my past Mm. and and they just grew to be a point where okay it got to I'd actually had a rented room in my uh, early 20s in North Sydney and I had this animation desk in the corner and an easel in the other corner, and I'd spend too much time at the easel, not getting the work done. Um, but the works just weren't encouraging. Um, I should have taken myself off to art school or yeah, something. Yeah, so but you were so, so basically self-taught. Yeah, I had a teacher at a, in in my last year at high school and said, "Don't go to art college; they'll ruin you." And I went, "Oh, all right." <laughs> she must know what she's talking about. So, so I don't how know, did so you I didn't, learn how to like well, how just, to deal with oil paint, for example? Well, so that, that was a serious beginning, but then it didn't work out. Um, and I was very influenced by, I, ever since, again, since high school, I was also very enamored of um, uh, Chuck Close and, uh, and um, Morley, what's his, Malcolm Morley, mm. who were New York, um, part of a New York photorealist movement. Mm. And Malcolm Morley was very, uh, you know, he worked... In their instance, the photograph was the subject. It didn't matter what the photograph was of, but it was the subject, was the photograph. Mm. But Michael Morley was more painterly um, in his approach, whereas initially Chuck Close um, was very much, pretty much it was just a big photograph. Yeah. But he, he took a photograph in such a way, so there's a great self-portrait in black and white, very large, mm. where the planes of... of um, focus are very shallow so he was painting out of focus um, planes and then in focus planes and what that gave you in terms of information so that was a really fascinating way of looking at what a photograph did Mm. Um, and then of course his work I don't know if you saw that show number not that many years ago at the MCA where his Mm. practice now um, is he's still working with the grid um, which has always fascinated me 
but it's, he's abstracted within the group. Yeah, that's right. Group. Pretty it's amazing. amazing thing. Yeah. I still don't know. They had a progress of his prints, um, some of his printmaking, and I still don't know how he got from some stages to the others. They're just leaps of imagination. Yeah. So I'd also looked at, you know, I also, also became a big fan of the um, Renaissance painters, largely through Auerbach and Kossoff. And of course, how they transpose an image using a grid, and then there's the late paintings of Walter Sickert using a grid. Mm. Um, I didn't know they used a grid. Yeah, well, they, they do what they call a cartoon, which wasn't wasn't what we know as a cartoon. It was a very developed drawing. Mm. Um, Raphael, um, you know, the School of Athens painting, you know, the, the drawings of that where they sort of grid them and then transpose them. Um, so it's just a mechanical way of making something smaller, larger. Mm. Um, but then when you get someone like Chuck Close and how he's developed, he's, he's very much taken the grid as a way of, of then, as a tool to move from what is a photographically real thing and, and playing with that photographic image, but then he turns it into something completely different. Mm. Completely different, which is completely, which is within his own, with his own painterly language. Yeah. So that's uh, so. In terms of of becoming a painter, um, all these things are feeding in, and and you get to a point where you go, oh, I've just got to do something, uh, but I don't know what to do. So you just get a room somewhere, um, and which is what I did. Uh, I got a room above a um, pressing shop, a laundromat um, down in Addison Road, under a flight path, and. And you have to be disciplined because I had to earn money. So I had, yeah. was a freelance animator. So I'd, I'd walk there at 8 o'clock in the morning. Um, it was in Enmore, so 20 minutes walk from home. Yeah. And I'd just push paint around for about four or five hours. And I'd walk home, have some lunch, and then do the day job. Can we talk about portraiture? Yeah. Because portraiture is one of my great interests mm, mm. and of course you know you are very well known for your portraiture mm. you've uh, been an Archibald Prize finalist 18 times mm. you've won the Archibald Prize of course with mm. your wonderful portrait of John Bell um, and you've been finalist in many other portrait prizes and the National Portrait Gallery held a wonderful exhibition which uh, was called Nicholas Harding 28 Portraits Sarah Engeldow the curator there brought together a wonderful exhibition of your work I just want to talk firstly, because I have interviewed a few Archibald winners, mm. and it's sort of interesting because it's, they're all varied sort of reactions to that experience, mm. and uh, I, you know, not all positive, actually, so I was just yeah. wondering what your, your experience was. Well, of course, to, to win that prize is incredibly exciting and, and a, and a marvellous thing. I mean, it's terrific. Um, so it's mostly... Of itself, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Um, I suppose if you're going to find a downside, is it, way it misses your head a bit. Um, because all of a sudden, for five minutes, everyone wants to know what, what you're doing and, and mm. what you think. Mm. Not necessarily about anything that you necessarily thought about. <laughs> you know, <laughs> some very journalists ringing up for your opinion on any kind of matter of the day that... that oh, not necessarily normally, painting. No, no. <laughs> and and, and all of a sudden you seem to... 
apparently you're qualified to, to make remarks about something you hadn't really paid that much attention to. Sometimes it is something you paid attention to, but, but not always. Yeah. Uh, yeah like a, well, you're sort of a celebrity in a way. Yeah, you are. Yeah, I guess yeah. you are. In, in it's, um, it's a small, a small um, pool in that, in that regard in terms of celebrity. You're not a football star and you don't play cricket and for, the, for the country and yeah. you're not a soapy star or, or in the movies or anything, but... Um, it is a celebrity of a kind, mm. and uh, was were you expecting it? Was it? In what? What was I? As expecting? Were you expecting to win? No, not really. I mean, people were were tipping me, definitely. Mm. But I, I've been at that was my eighth time in it, um, and I'd had a couple in the refuse, mm. and um, and it was kind of like, well, really, there's usually something else in the room that that gets there. Yeah. And uh, and I think it was the second time you painted John Bell. It was. I painted him the yeah. previous year, and that was to acquaint myself because I always had in my mind to paint him as King Lear because that was my initial impulse to paint him. Mm. But I didn't know him, and I had to paint him. I'd had a, done a few um, very quick sketches from memory when I got back from watching him as King Lear. We were in the front row in the middle, so prime seats. Mm. And that was the thing, that was the impulse, you know, that was the, that initial impulse that, that drives the creation mm. of a work. Well, I hear that he saw the sketch and he actually contacted you that... Um... Oh, that was a different sketch. Oh, is that a different sketch? Yeah, right. so, and that was some years before. So I would seen him in Coriolanus um, at the Seymour Centre. Oh, yeah. Uh, which I think was directed by Steve Burkoff. Um, I could be wrong on that. Um, but uh, I did a, just a an ink and paper drawing of him mm. and a, one of their donors, sponsors, supporters bought it and donated it to Bell Shakespeare and, oh. and then John, who we'd actually met at morning tea at, at our mutual friend Rex Irwin's some time beforehand and um, you know we liked each other's company and mm. it, it, was a, it was a beginning of a, a good friendship but um, we hadn't seen each other for, for ages, but he, he sent me a nice postcard and said, oh, if you ever want to have me sit for the Archibald, just let me know. Right, And right. so when I saw him in King Lear, a little bit later, yeah. I got in touch with him and went to, he's a very busy man. Certainly back then he was very, very busy. So the only, only sitting initially to do a drawing was at lunchtime when he was um, rehearsing Dance of Death, the Strindberg play down at um, the Wharf, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I'd arrived early, so I parked outside and was reading the paper, waiting for the t- allotted time. And then I noticed he, he came out to walk his dog, and he was still, obviously, still in that Strindberg. He was still the Colonel. He was in that liminal space of not quite himself and not quite the character. Yeah. But he had this look on his face that was very intense and would would help him form my portrait of. King Lear later on. Anyway, he took the dog for a walk and then we, we did a drawing. Well, that's very interesting what you were saying about getting the expression because I think that's one of the most important things for a portrait artist and it's one of the hardest <laughs> things for a portrait artist is to try and get the right expression for that person. Mm-hmm. And um, I read about you, you know, you've talked about this before where mm. you're sort of trying to find that off-guarded moment. Yeah. Uh, um, how do you go about trying to get to, to find that? Well, you don't really try and find it. You just have to be open to it turning up and mm. try not to miss it. 
Do you have to know the person reasonably well to be able to identify that that is that moment? No, no, and often you don't know what it is, but you notice something. For mm. instance, when I um, uh, painted Robert Drew, and I think the one I ended up, yeah, the one I ended up um, that was in the Archibald was um, the third attempt. And I tried two previously. The first one was all right, but then I um, wasn't happy, so I kind of started reworking it and just fell apart. Mm. And then I tried another one, and it wasn't very good at all. And Catherine Hunter was doing a film thing on Robert, and an opportunity arose to shoot both of us while I drew him, but it was while he was in Byron Bay. And we did the drawing and a bit of filming, and then there was a break, and we just sort of did a, just didn't do much, just sat around, and he went off, and then he was coming back, and I just noticed this look on his face, and I thought, wow, that's really powerful. I didn't know what it was, but that was the thing I tried to to bring back into the painting, which mm. I did, mm. and I later found out that he was having, you know. Um, some marital troubles and, and he was very much thinking in mind of, of, of those oh. and I hadn't and he, and he was he actually wrote a little article about it he said you know Nicholas had no idea what was going on mm. but it's there in the painting and and it's in my eyes and I can and he could, he could identify himself. himself yeah so well, isn't it, that's the one where he's swimming he's, he's yeah, basically he's, he's, it's just his head just and in the, shoulders in the, in the, in the sea in, yeah in the sea and yeah. um, I must say that is a very powerful expression in it, his it is, yeah, yeah it's it's probably the best pair of eyes I've painted. Um, I mean, part of it's to do with the fact that it's, it's, it brings this, the ocean into them as well. Mm. That's part of the power of those eyes, is the fact that, that um, you know, the, the sea's there just below his chin and it's sort of, it's, and, and that's part of the thing I wanted to bring into it because he writes about the sea so well. Mm. Uh, and do you think, do you think, um, do you think that the the eyes are probably the most expressive part of the face? Do you, in that respect, I mean, um, to convey emotion. The gaze is very important. Yeah, um, I, th I think one of the, the paramount things in painting a portrait and making it successful is giving the visage of the person, the representation of the person, um, a sense of of consciousness. So being aware when you look at the portrait that there's there's a mind at work. Mm. And, and that could be almost anything about it. Well, you don't know. Could, you yeah. don't, you have, we have no idea what each other's thinking. No idea. No. You know, it's, it's yeah. a, it's a, you know we, we pretend and romanticise about wind, eyes of the windows of the soul and whatever that, but you can't see No. You can't see anything. No. You know, and, well, and, and as Giacometti said, he said, someone asked him, you know, if he was trying to do that, paint what's on the interior, and his response, well, no, there's, there's just too much information on the outside to try and get right, to bother <laughs> with what's right. going on the inside. But the thing about that, that, the thing that that comment gives away is that body language and the way a face can read can give you some internal information, give you a sense. Not always, but sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes well, we, we make that up too. It's, it's, again, it's a subjective thing, as all reading of art is, but it's, it's, uh, it's going to be subjective in terms of how someone views a portrait mm. or a painting. Well, it can be, I, I think also with a portrait, is it can be the tiniest part of it that brings it to life. Like it can be mm. a highlight mm. or a, mm. you know, 
the, the most minuscule sort of line yeah, yeah, that he's going to do yeah, that. Yeah, but it's yeah. identifying what that is. That yes. <laughs> we're trying to figure out and, where And being able to place it correctly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, actually, with your style of work, which, I mean, I haven't even, we haven't even mentioned this yet, that you use a very, you know, impasto style mm. usually. Um, I would suspect that there'd be a lot of challenges with that with a portrait because mm, right, yeah. isn't there, I mean, I would have thought you've got problems with shadows of the actual paint as well that yep. might interfere yep. with the actual, Reading know. of the image. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, yep. Do you sometimes have to adjust that be, for that reason? Um, I guess I do it intuitively now. I mean, I became aware of it on a number of instances because often something that looks or right in the studio and it goes out into the world and it's happened a few times in the Archibald. <clears throat> and then it's hung in a different light. Yeah. And it's kind of, that's not how it looks in the studio. <laughs> and, uh, and you suddenly realise, oh, there's different things at play here in terms of what you're talking about, the shadowing and the reading. Maybe a shadow that was in the studio isn't there anymore, so it's flat. Or it goes the other way and it's, it's um, harrowed or um, mm. becomes an irksome thing. So that is a, that is a technical problem that, that definitely I'm aware of and, and is so you're built into the way I, yeah. I guess I put it together now. And a lot of it's in, also helped by the fact that um, since 2013 I've been painting uh, portraits from life in gouache and watercolour. And that's using a brush and a flat medium. Mm. And so that's helped me to, to read the form in that way where I don't require, you know, the, the massive amounts of paint. It's become more about the drawing. Yes. Um, well, I would have thought gouache would be very hard to do portraits in because uh, it dries so fast. It does, but it's just, it just another discipline in the sense that you... you um, I mean, the sessions are between two and three hours, so I don't have long, and they're life size pretty much. They're mm. on three sheets of paper, full oh, figure. Yeah, I saw one of Anna Volska actually that was yeah. really great, yeah. of John Bell's wife. Yeah, yeah. So with her dog. Yeah, with her dog. And um, beautiful. I've got those boxes over there are full. I mean, the tall one is four sheets. Ah. So the study I did of John Olson for the portrait, that's a four sheeter. So the one of John Olson, so you did a gouache work yep. of John Olson before you did the Archibald entry that yeah, you and that, and that, last year. And um, I didn't get as long as I thought because we were up drinking rosé after an hour and a half <laughs> and I thought I was going to get three hours. So what I got in an hour and a half was the information I worked with. I didn't take any oh. photographs of, of any use. And really? So you did that all from life? And so I projected the, I projected the, it's all in the, um, that um, uh, Archibald documentary. So in okay, here, yeah. I, I, As I was saying, I, I didn't get to see that because I haven't yeah, got Fox so I, pro I projected the, the image of the gouache. Yeah. And, and then I had the gouache actually sitting pinned up on a large canvas to the side over here. But then I was working to a projection. And a projection only works to a certain degree, certainly in terms of transposing proportionally. Mm. But then you get too much information in terms of what's projected and what you put on. You have to turn the projector off. Yes. And then yes. it becomes about working from the gouache or in some cases the drawing. So the gouache was your main yeah, sort of Yeah, that was my uh, source. source. Yeah. But the thing that that brings into play as well is memory. Mm. So when I look at the gouache and I'm trying to read a particular form in the face, that's taking me back to the moment that I was looking at the face. Mm. And then, there's, then that brings back a little bit more information than's in 
the gouache. But then there was still information, there were holes in my memory and there were holes in the gouache in the mm. sense of what information I required. So we went to an opening of John's show at, at Tim's gallery and I just spent the whole night just looking at John. <laughs> I mean, he must have... You know, he didn't comment on it, but I, I must look like some kind of stalker. Yeah, right. And I knew the problems I had to solve, so I was yeah. looking at those zones, and I went back the next day, and I just put them in. Oh, from memory from of memory. that night. Yeah. So you didn't draw anything no, when you were watching no, it? No, I, I sort of drew from memory, but they didn't work as drawings, but they might have helped me bring something back. But yeah, didn't come yeah. But it was... It, it was um, That's amazing. I always find it amazing that people can work from memory because I, I don't know, I just can't sort of... There's always stuff missing, but then sometimes that's not important. Sometimes yeah. it is, and you have to return to whatever it is. And um, what did he think of that painting? Um, did he tell you? No, he didn't tell me. Did uh, you ask him? No, I didn't ask him. <laughs> well, this leads me on to the question. When Tim loved it. Did he? Tim loved it. I loved it. And I think Tim, it's great. And Tim told me that John loved it, and, um, and I know I've had my portrait painted, and it's yeah. an awkward moment, very awkward. But it's, he's one of the best subjects I've ever had. And in not what just, way? In what well, way? many ways. First of all, who he is, and he's yeah. a painter. Yeah. So I should just say for overseas listeners, who probably know of Joel Nolson anyway, but <clears throat> he is one of our most important artists in Australia. He is indeed. Yeah. And, um, and a poet as well, and, and, and uh, bon vivant. Hmm. So in many ways, that's, that ebullience is a great subject. Um, yeah. But he's a painter, so immediately there's empathy in the room when you sit with someone who's a painter. Definitely. There's immediate empathy. Didn't he say something like, be brutal? That's what I was leading to. <laughs> so he said, after we said, be brutal. And, um, <laughs> and that frees you. A painter would say that. And that frees you. Yeah, definitely. Do you know, because I've, I've had a fairly recent portrait experience where, where you know, it, 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 it didn't go well in terms of the response from the, um, the sitter. It was one of my best portraits. But it, but it. Um, it must be disappointing. Or well, do you in, not in really? a way, it's it's disappointing because, um, yeah, because you think you've done the person justice. You know, they they're at a particular time of life, so, you know, they they're not as as young and and um, and glorious as they might have once been, but it certainly remains in their visage. Um, but we all get old and, and mm. we all um, aren't what we used to be. We're all a little bit diminished. But the, the painting certainly didn't, didn't um, it's still a very commanding presence. So it's, it's disappointing in one sense, but I'm still incredibly proud of the painting and very happy I painted mm. it. Mm. Um, but it's a little bit disappointing because it doesn't, doesn't get as much light of day as it, as it, as it deserves. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it, how other people react to your work yeah. and how you feel about it. And, and it's, 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 it's nothing new. I mean, it's yeah. a, it's, it goes way back. You yeah. know, I mean, the Pope, number of popes who weren't happy with whatever their um, masters mm. of the day did with them. And, um, you know, it's not a, not a new thing. Mm. And, and so John's comment, you know, there was nothing vain or he was just interested in and facilitating and servicing a, a fellow painter, which was a remarkable mm. gift to receive. And, um, oh, definitely. And also, and, he's, I, and I feel I've done him justice. Yeah, yeah, so, you have definitely. It's yeah. a great painting, yeah. wonderful painting. Do you talking about? Um, well, just sort of capturing well youth in a way. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. 
I remember, I think it was Singer Sergeant. Oh, oh glorious um, painter. Yeah. What a portrait I, painter he is. Oh, yeah, yeah amazing. Yeah. But I've t- I think he's got a great gift for painting young women. He does. And I've said to people, it's almost impossible. I've said to other artists, I think on this podcast, mm. it's one of the hardest things is to paint young women. Yes. Um, I've done a portrait of a young woman from life, and that was okay. It's just a, an, an oil painting on paper, but um, that worked out reasonably well. Mm. Uh, mm. But most of them, the ones I have done, uh, have been on, on paper. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't with it? With gouache. Yeah, with gouache. Yeah, and yeah. watercolour. A, a sort of more of a... It's, it's well, a it's more liquid, is more... Gen- gentle or something. Gentle or more... Um, more of a contiguous surface. It's not as the surface isn't interrupted by mark, um, disrupted, disrupted mark as much. Mm. Um, it's, 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 it's an interesting conundrum. Mm. Do you feel there's more pressure to, to flatter a woman if you're doing it for women? There's definitely that, that sense of, um, of that coming into it. Yes, definitely. And I don't, I don't know why that is. Maybe that's a, a male gaze hang-up. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly didn't didn't bother people like Picasso. Or, <laughs> you know, uh, well, I suppose you also want to please the person in a way. Sometimes, yep, yep. Sometimes you do. Yes, you do. Certainly, there is that, uh, which is a, which is a reverse vanity. You know, it's the word vanity working back the other way. <laughs> so that's that's a bit of a tell. Yeah, tells you a bit it's about so yourself. difficult. I think portraiture is sort of fraught. Oh, it's with a all film. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a fraught minefield. Especially when they end up in the Archibald. I mean, you've had so many in the Archibald and they're so public. Yes. You know, you know that everyone's going to see them. And I look back at some of them and I've destroyed a few. Really? And um, some of them, others I've looked back and gone, oh, that's a, not many, but there are some that just, oh, quel horreur. It's just. Really? You feel like that about some of your past work? Yeah. I mean, you've got, basically, I was using the Archibald to grow up in public um, (laughs) because one, it gives you a great audience you know, more people go to see that show than you'd get nothing close to that for a solo exhibition. Nothing close to no, it. No, that's right. And the other thing is you get you to see your work up um, as some kind of measurement against your peers, mm. um, which can be, which can work out well when, say, when you sort of win a, win a People's Choice or, a, or a, the big one, and on other occasions as well. But it's often the failures that, that teach you more in the sense that when you've done a real, well, that not as good as I thought it was when it was back in the studio, and you measure it against a really good one by you know a mate of yours or something, mm. and you go, wow, okay, so what's going on here? So that, that's a dialogue between two painters going on there, and you can learn from that. Yeah. You know? And uh, I mean, I've been, blessed in one sense because when you start out you never expect to be of any influence and, and, and I've seen my influence at work in quite a number of occasions mm. and, and in some occasions they've, they've taken off in different you know new directions which were very mm. exciting and that's, that's a wonderful thing to, um, to behold. Some but, people don't like it though, some people don't like it when they see other people taking it. Well sometimes it's too copied mm. um, but I've copied people mm. and Initially, you're a bit sort of, oh, well, you know, it's, when, when you're in a whole exhibition of pretty much copies of, of um, a Rivers figure series of mine, and it was kind of like, oh, that's a bit, mm. that's not quite right. But then you realise it was, it's really quite, quite flattering in yeah. another sense. 
Yeah, and as long as they don't do it better than you. <laughs> well, exactly right. I was about to say that mine were much better. So it was okay. They hadn't really got a handle on it. You know, they, they were, yeah. weren't quite hitting the mark. And uh, which <laughs> those, is good. By the way, talking about that river series, oh my God, I love those. Oh, thank you. I remember yeah. when, well, there was it, the, that great um, survey of your work at SH Urban yes. Gallery, Drawn to Paint, yes. in 2010. Yeah. And I went to that and I just, oh. That was the oh. most recent work in that show. So that was, was it? Yeah, yeah. About a year old or something. It so. must have been still drying. Pretty much. <laughs> yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I think with those, with some of those, when you had those huge, actually, we should talk about your landscapes. We should move on to your yeah. landscapes because. Yeah, I probably should just finish that oh, yes. thought yep. about um, influence and what I was saying, learning from your peers. Um, mm. The other thing you can take from that is you can take back. So they take from you, but. Yeah. What's stopping you from taking what they've learned yeah. and bringing it into your work? Exactly. So it's it's um, it's a conversation that goes. You know, you want to remain yourself, but you, you know, we're, there's a great um, Bono line in the Fly. You know that song of Actung Baby, and it's um, every artist. What is it? Every every artist is a criminal. Every poet is a thief. We kill the things we love and we sing about the grief. So an artist just goes out there and, as Picasso famously said, you just steal what you want. Yeah. And um, you don't borrow it. You don't want to give it back. <laughs> so you can go out and take it. And, yeah, uh, and yeah. if, you're, if you're a good enough artist, it'll just fold back into your work and become yours anyway. Yeah, let's talk about your landscape work because, um, you know, I've... As we just talked about, your, your show at SH Irvin Gallery was just amazing. Uh, and um, the, you've painted, you know, rivers, uh, cliffs, beaches, countryside, and huge, often a lot of vegetation in those, mm. those paintings. And particularly those palm-like pandanus plants, mm. which have been popping up for a long time. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to talk about, in particular, uh, uh, you know, the works you've been doing from... Uh, the Flinders Ranges yeah. in the last few years because yeah. they're just incredible. Yes. Is it is the place called Wilpina? Wilpina. Wilpina. Yeah, Wilpina Pound. So okay. it's um, it's a you know long extinct volcano that's a it's a round uh, containment in the, within the landscape. Oh, I see. And so it's it's dense. So we're talking about an area that's dense eucalypts, mm. wattles, yeah, um, gums. And you can walk. There's a major walk. You can major walks you can do around it so oh, you, get, okay. you get quite immersed in, in, in the whole the whole landscape well when I got well I think it was in 2016 the 2016 um, entry into the wind prize which you were highly commended for mm. it's called uh, Wilpina Wattle and I remember walking into the Arco of New South Wales and seeing that and just being totally bowled over by it because it, it just envelops you and it's basically looking straight into dense mm. scrub mm. so well impenetrable yeah can you tell me a bit about how you go about those sort of paintings well the, these paintings I've been using um, photographic reference and certainly with the ones like the one behind me here where the scale has, has gone up I've started working re reworking with the uh, grid which I did way back even before I was exhibiting Right. And so this one so we're looking at is probably like two. Is it two, over two? Two and, and a half. Right. By about just under two. Yep. Um, and basically, I just work on one particular area at a time, and I treat it as an abstract piece, so that 
the photographs aren't always directly what's been transposed from the the environment. Sometimes it's um, I've started using a bit of Photoshop. Yeah, right. So I've always been a big fan of Hockney and the way he's brought different elements and different tools into his means of practice. Mm. I've done the on plane air thing, and I've you know done successful work on plane air, but I find on plane air too limiting. In what way? Uh, well, you're, you've got to get a work finished pretty much within a certain time frame because I work with oils, so it limits in terms of scale. Yeah. The, 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 the nature of the ambition of the work is different. The thing I liked about, about it, it's a very robust way of, of, of um, working and it's a great way, a bit like life drawing, of bringing uh, a descriptive brevity to the work and an economy. But the work isn't as contemplative as, as I like it to be. Mm. I want to slow the process of making the work down. Mm. I want it to, to be more absorbing. It's probably best to go back to the, the inks on paper. So the inks on paper, which I've been doing for, for decades now, they've always been from, from photographs. And the, the thing I liked about that was the resistance in the paper and then involving the paper in the, in the drawing process. Well, you more, you scratched into that paper, yeah, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, I mean, and that was just a matter of correction and, and, and putting the image together by mm. taking it back to the paper again to make a fresh mark. But the thing that I enjoy about that process is it slowed me down. And so the... the I'm trying to find the right word to describe the drawing within it. It's more concise it's more it's yeah. more considered and the mark making becomes abstracted if you go in and look at the surface the, the mark making the inks on paper very abstracted mm. so we're but talking about they, like eddie avenue yeah for eddie example. avenue yeah. and the pandanus which you won the Nobel prize yeah. for and, and the and the pandanus um oh, and, that, and that's very much what's led me to somewhere like wolpina um wolpina i responded to because of the nature of the the the, the, the light and the nature of the 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 colour of the palette that was that was offered, but the light's the paramount thing. So I was looking for a way of bringing that practice of how I worked with the inks on paper into the landscape. So with the benefit of having been out doing it on plain air for for, for some time, um, and I was producing finished works that were going to exhibition um, that way, uh, but I wanted to take it somewhere else mm. and and so by using a similar way of working with oil and the canvas as I was with the um, the inks on paper I've been able to bring that more considered nature into it and I've always been interested in fracturing the surface so it's an, it's recognizing its artificial nature and it's it's um, it's fragmented abstracted mark making but then when you pull back, it becomes a naturalistic image. Mm. But I like that, that, um, that kind of robust uh, is it dichotomy, you know, where you've got two mm. things at work um, mm. in the one thing. And I was very um, inspired by that MCA show of Chuck Close and how he turned each individual part of the grid of the, the face into its own little delightful abstract. Yeah. And play, it was playful and... and um, and exciting. Well, even just looking behind you now, I'm looking at the painting you're working on, mm. and I can see that each of those 
parts of the whole have got something beautiful in them mm. themselves mm. because the, the colour will be, you know. Mm. Well, also what it does is, is it, often when you're on plein air, you focus on particular elements to tie your composition together. And often there's a, there's a hierarchy of structure, if you like. Whereas this, this more considered contemplative approach, I find you get more of a, a, an over, um, sort of a democratic kind of treatment of the surface. So no particular element's any more important than the other. Mm. So it's almost um, flattening it in that sense. And, and the leaves aren't leaves and the bark's not bark and mm. the tree's not a tree, they're all paint. Mm. And they're all mark making, which is an abstract thing. Yes. And I, as I said, I do, I do love abstract work, but, but I need to be tethered to something that can't be arbitrary in the nature of an abstract mm. work. Um, but there, I presume, though, even though when we zero in and that, that abstraction is happening, you have to pull back and then make sure it works as a whole. Yeah, I don't stand back that often. Don't um, you? No. Oh, that's um, interesting. It's um, maybe, I don't know, it's hard to, you can't really measure these things in, in, in a very defined way. It's, it's uh, once again, it's a very intuitive, organic mm. thing. It's just um, what you do during the day. But I guess I lean back maybe a metre or so, but um, I rarely step back a long way and until a few hours have passed. So you're pretty confident that the composition is going to work. Yeah, I trust you know, my process. Yeah, you know, yeah. I've got my information, and the information deteriorates because it gets covered in paint. <laughs> so often something I'm, I'm, I'm transposing wasn't actually in the original photograph. It's, it's a mark of paint, but it's like, oh, that, that's actually quite effective. And so it becomes part of the landscape. Um, and that's nothing new because that... Yeah. Francis Bacon used to do that all the time. You see the floor of his studio and, and the photos that he was working with and, and the, acts, the wipes of paint that have turned into some kind of um, spark for things he's put into his paintings. Yeah, so it's right. just this... Um, so all that, that tying, you know, I, 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 I see you know, a lot of people sort of think, you know, you, you can't paint from photographs because it's, it's not right. But I think if you recognise its strengths also recognise its weaknesses. Its weaknesses, it's, it's a monocular nature. Mm. So you've always got to be mindful of it's looking down a tunnel, um, which is that thing that, you know, that, that moment of disappointment coming back from a holiday and you used to get your holiday snaps back when the, the days when you used to get pick them up from the chemist. Yeah. And you remember this great day and you took this great picture of this great piece of scenery and you look at it and it looks, oh, so flat and far away. Yeah, that's right. And it's because that's what a photograph does. It pushes things away. It doesn't yeah. bring it in. It has no intimacy. Yeah. And that's because it doesn't have stereoscopic vision. So we're, we're blessed with this continual vision mix of, of left and right. And mm. it gives you all these pushes and pulls sideways, um, forward, back, that, you know, every time you move your head, everything, all the relationships shift a little bit. Mm. And... So you get all that when you do things from life and on plain air. Um, but when you're working back in the studio and you've, you've got your, your, you've got your, your um, fundamental photographic reference, but you've also got the concept you originally had and you've got all the impulses you had 
from that original moment in the landscape. Mm. So you've got the sounds, you've got the smells, you've got the, the weather, you've got the breeze or not, and your sense of placement in it. And all these things are feeding in into this this new thing you're making yeah. back in the studio. Yeah. So I think it's, I think it's a very I think it's valuable to have all those those avenues of experience. Mm. Um, but but the once other it thing comes back to the studio, it's an it's as I say as I keep saying it's an artificial thing. So it's got to you've got to make up your own rules. Of course, and yeah. I think. Well, that's right, and you've you, and you make up your own rules in relation to your work using mm. the photographic reference because obviously the paint you're putting on is not as it appears in the photograph. You know. No, I mean? no, no. And I'm not I even. Mean, I'm not even painting the photograph and such. No, it's, um, it's, 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 it's. I presume it's like a structural guide. It's in definitely a way. A, yes. It's a. It's a. It's a I guess that's. A, it's a skeletal. Um, a skeletal form, but. Mm. Um, there are so many more things. Otherwise, I just go and print a photograph. Yeah, exactly. A photograph exactly. doesn't give me anything. And the other, yeah. the very important thing about a painting is it's full of time. A photograph is one two hundred fiftieth of a second or whatever. Mm. Whereas a painting, it's not just the time it takes to make the thing. It's the time during its its initial genesis and conception before it even gets to this point of being something in the studio. Um, in process, it's it's all the other things that have gone before you in in the sense of you know your past, the things you've paid attention to, all the all the painters that you've looked at and and taken things from the ones you're still looking at and taking things from. Mm. So it's just this just this many-headed um, beast of um, of possibility, yeah. you know, and you get it into this crucible of the studio. And you kind of wrest some kind of material thing from it. Also, another very interesting aspect of your work is these drawings that you have been, or oh, and and paintings that you have been um, doing in relation to uh, theatre work. Yeah. And because a very close friend of yours is Hugo Weaving, the actor, who has invited you to the Sydney Theatre Company to, so you you are actually witnessing their rehearsals as well as their performances and drawing while they're yeah. doing that. Yes. How's that been? How, what sort oh, of so, it's so, um, such a wonderful experience and such a marvellous opportunity. And um, it's sort of opening things up in, in different ways. And it's also a natural following on from things that have gone previously. So that must have been like life drawing on steroids because they would have been moving around. Yeah, they're, they're, they're always moving. So it's not like life drawing in the sense that someone sits still for even a minute. Um, they're always on the go. But the thing is they're always repeating things as well because uh -huh. they're working over business. They're taking the script and the play apart um, and then putting it back together both, both lingually and... Um, and as a kinetic matter of performance on, on stage. Mm. So there's this, this um, I guess, a, a parallel universes of me drawing and, and them rehearsing, uh, working in tandem in one sense because we're both finding our own rhythms in, mm. in how to do what we are there to do. And the thing that sort of works for me over time because 
because rehearsals go for about six weeks, including Tech Week in, in the theatre. Mm. And I'm becoming acquainted with the work as, as they construct it and create it. Yeah. And, and so that, that kind of reveals itself in the line. So as they start off a little awkwardly working things out, so my drawings start off a little awkwardly trying to work things out. Mm. Uh, and then the line also becomes informed not by just becoming more fluent in my transposition of what's happening in front of me um, and my observation of, of what they, they are performing. It's, it's also getting a sense of, of, of what's in the text and the subtext. There's, there's, there's some of that sort of bleeding into the, into the shapes and the, and the forms that I'm, that I'm finding. Mm. And, well, yeah, and, and, then, and they're revealing to me because they're finding shapes. You know, they're shapeshifters and they're in the liminal world of, of um, neither themselves nor the characters they're becoming. So they're, they're shaping these, melding all these elements together in, in performance. Yeah, well, I mean, and they're amazing plays that you've been drawing. I mean, they are for example, plays. Waiting for Godot, talking yeah. about text and subtext, I yeah, mean. Yes, <laughs> Endgame, another Beckett that I've drawn, and then you have Macbeth, you know, the Shakespeare, yeah. um, and then there's, there's Chekhov with um, the present. Um, and, and also, and you've been, have you been drawing, like, some of the our most talented Australian actors, you yeah, know, Hugo Weaving, Richard yeah. Roxburgh, Kate Blanchett. Yep. Yep. And, um, you know, they're, they're, uh, that must be pretty thrilling as well to see it's, that sort of quality of actor doing their thing. Yes, yeah. And, and it's also encouraging in another way because as an artist, you know, there's many failures that go into the making of our work um, and we fail alone. Um, the mm. actors, they... they um, they fail together to find their successes. Because yeah. to succeed and to find, to experiment, obviously there's going to be failure uh, along the way. Mm. Um, so it's very revealing to watch that occur and then to see how they solve those problems. So those initial vulnerable grapplings with text and concepts within the, 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 the play become sort of consummate achievements to witness that is is a very first a very privileged thing to 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 be able to do Mm. but it's also revealing in the sense that that is just part of the creative process and when i when i say sort of watch them fail to succeed um you know, people often think of failure as a bad thing or as a, as a, as a, you know, as a negative thing. But really it's often by trying things that don't work that you find the thing that does work. Yeah. You know, and if you just do the same thing all the time because that worked last time, it doesn't mean it's going to work next time. Mm. So you, you've got to sort of always remain open to the possibility of throwing something into the mix you haven't tried before. Yeah and, and um, seeing where it goes. Exactly. And it's great to hear that that's, uh, those works are ultimately going to make their way into a book, which hopefully will be coming out. Yes, yes we've year. made a selection of, because there's thousands of drawings from dozens of books, so we've made yeah. a, 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 a selection of, of some of the, the, the more successful ones. And uh, hopefully, yeah, that, that's in uh, mid-range production at the moment. So mm. it's still got a way to go, but yeah. it's getting, looking good. 
Well, talking about drawing, some drawings of yours that I really enjoyed were ones that were on Instagram and they were drawings that you actually drew when you were going through cancer treatment, which mm. you were diagnosed with at the end of 2017 and happily you're now cancer-free. Mm. Um, can you tell me a bit about that period, like the, the, those drawings? <coughs> and, and Sure, yeah. Um, well, I couldn't get into the studio for about five months. Um, I was just too tired and I was on opioids and, and it was just too... Um, I wanted in here every now and then to look at the work. I had to work on the go, a big work, this kind of scale. And I just came in to sit in front of it and think about what I was going to do with it next when I came back to it. Mm. And so I, but usually I was at home and um, sleeping, um, going to treatment, watching television, trying to read. That didn't really happen either. Couldn't really concentrate. But I had to do something, so I kept a visual journal and sometimes a week would go by where I hadn't drawn anything, but then I'd pick up the pen and draw something. And the things I was drawing, I was drawing people in the waiting rooms, I was drawing my arm with the cannula in it while I was yeah. having chemo. Um, Did you have to feel sufficiently well to be able to do that? I mean, well, was, I wasn't, did it help uh, you? Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, the opioids work, so you don't, you don't feel a lot in the sense that I wasn't in great pain. Mm. Um, I was definitely uncomfortable, but um, I was getting off fairly lightly in terms of, of you know what can happen. So that was a plus. Mm. And I was in good hands both at the hospital and, and at home and with friends. Mm. And so the drawings actually became uh, I was often drawing, apart from those things I've just mentioned, I was drawing things that people were giving me. The, initially, they were giving me food. Yeah. Um, well, and then I couldn't eat, so they weren't giving me food. Or if they did, Lynn would eat it, which was good because she was a carer. She needed taken care of as well. Yeah. And um, people sent me lots of flowers um, and yeah. occasional good. gifts, books, yeah. candles, um, things of that nature. And so I drew these things um, and the fruit and the... And, whatever mm. and as well as the 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 hospital mm. things as well and so it was it became very much a celebration of because of, um, that's what my work is it celebrates the fact that you know we're here at all kind of thing and, and how and how wonderful it can be I mean we've got to recognize that it's not wonderful for everybody but I'm a lucky person and many of us are and I want to celebrate that that nature of of, of, of life and so this, this was like a celebration of care and friendship and love and, and good medicine as mm, well. Um, mm. I mean, there are a couple of pages that, that um, refer to ugly moments that were terrible. Uh, mm. and, and I kept them reasonably cryptic. So... The darker times. Yeah, the darker times. But they're there. And... Mm. Um, uh, I wasn't interested in illustrating my pain, necessary my pain or any kind of suffering that mm. doesn't appeal to me. Mm. Um, and and I, I don't, I don't, I didn't count it high on a scale of pain and suffering. I I saw at the hospital people going through far worse. I know people who've gone through far worse, and mm. uh, not necessarily who've survived. And and so I think to you know I, I don't believe in that ego side of, of um, expression. I, I try to avoid that. Mm. I think that's why I was alluding to uh, um, the consideration and contemplation that I'm trying to bring into, into the landscape 
it's more of a meditative contemplation of life. Um, exciting, but a, but, a, but a quieter vibration, a really sort of um, enduring resonance. So these, well, the, we're talking about the, you know, you're mentioning the landscapes. So these, so you've got a show coming up at Philip Bacon Galleries yeah, in, a, yeah, yeah. in a few months, yeah. in August. Yeah. Um, are these, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Is it going to be sort of focusing on that Will Pina's sort of? Um, I think so, yeah. I yeah. think so. I've really found a, I, it's, the, the thing that attracted me was the light, and, and my subject pretty much is largely light. Well, Nicholas, thank you so much for having me in your studio. Pleasure. I'm just, it's been a great conversation, and good mm. luck with your show. Thanks very much, Maria. Thank you. What a great artist. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Nicholas Harding. His solo show is coming up at Philip Bacon Galleries in Brisbane in August. And as of the time this podcast goes online, which is 11 March 2019, his work is also hanging in the exhibition Destination Sydney Reimagined at the SH Irvine Gallery in Sydney. I'll also be getting a short video of Nicholas in his studio onto social media, the website and the Talking With Painters YouTube channel. Thanks for listening and hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking With Painters. There's a dance that goes on with me as a, as a moving figure producing work. So if I'm sitting down working at a desk or something, it's, it's pretty much all from the wrist. It's all the dexterity, it's all the wrist. Sometimes there's a little bit of elbow. Once I'm up on my feet and you get to a canvas of a certain size, the shoulder gets involved. And then once I'm on something like this two and a half by two metre painting, the whole body's involved. There's a dance that's coming off the balls on my feet and, and it becomes an entire body movement. Mm -hmm.